in this series, what we've looked at is in seeking Jesus, we learned the importance of prepare ye room in your heart. You know the song, right? Joy to the world. And John the Baptist led the way in the preparation for Jesus the Messiah to come to this earth. He preached a message of repentance in order to prepare people's hearts for the, for the coming of Jesus and seeking after Jesus. And then last week, we learned the importance of uh, why God chose Bethlehem in seeking Jesus. God will often choose the insignificant in life, the unremarkable things of life. That way, when his presence shows up and he will make the insignificant significant, he will make the unremarkable remarkable, then there will be no question as to his grace and his goodness on places and people's lives. Now, this week... We're going to look at how after the celebration of the birth of Christ, after the singing of the angels and the bright lights and the shepherds have all went back to normal, we have to understand that the seeking doesn't stop. And I know it's here, but it must be here. Because whether we want to admit it or not, Christmas influences even Christians in a way to go above and beyond in this season. And we all would say, well, we celebrate Jesus every single day, but we get moved by the holiday to do things we don't normally do. And, nor and many people do the same thing. The challenge is, is to live that Christmas lifestyle each and every single day. So it's after the excitement fades the emotions of the holiday, whether they're good or bad, they begin to stabilize, and then life gets back to routine, busyness, everything that you do normally, that you have to learn how to seek Jesus, how to seek Jesus like wise men. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12 from the New King James, God's word says this, now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests, the scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Just a quick pause, because I haven't touched on it much this year. If you remember from last week, I read that verse because it points out Bethlehem. But the important thing is that that verse comes out of Micah chapter 5. And it is a prophecy from a book that was written six to 700 years before Jesus was ever on the face of the earth. It was a book, if you understand how the Bible was put together, 
was established before Jesus was ever on the face of the earth. We know that from history. It's a fact. And so that is a book that was written that stated this was going to take place. There's a lot of things that Jesus could have done in his ministry to make it appear as if he was the Messiah that was coming to the Jews to be the Savior of the world. But what's the one thing you can't control in life? Well, there's a lot of things. One of the most important things you can't control in life, where you were born. And so in order for that prophecy from that book that was written six to seven hundred years before Jesus came to earth and the gospel was written about his life, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Now the odds of that, I won't even go into this morning, are outrageous. And then every other prophecy that he fulfilled from all the other individual books that one day came together that we would call the Bible. And it was well known where he would be born, so well known that Herod would gather the chief priests and they would tell him, oh, it was written about right here. So well known that wise men that would live over a thousand miles away possibly would know that this is where he would be born. And so it says in verse 7, Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child, and when you had found him, bring back word to me that I may have come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them, till it came and stood over them where the young child was. It's interesting, they saw the star, they followed the star. Once they got to Jerusalem, they lost the star, which required them to ask about the prophecy or where he was born. And then when they stepped back out, that the star they would see again would lead them directly to where Jesus was living in a house. But that's another sermon. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, everybody say house. They saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. This morning... We're going to look at the wise men, and we're going to look at what they weren't, and then we're going to look at what they were. There's a lot of tradition and myth that surrounds the wise men. If you've been in church very long, you've probably heard most of that. But every now and then, I start talking to people about what actually took place at Christmas, what the Bible says, and, and they learn that a lot of what we know and celebrate is actually tradition. The first thing that I want to talk about this morning is that it says they came after the birth of Jesus. We don't know how long that was for sure, but they aren't actually a part of the manger scene that we see in all nativity sets. There's several different theories on the wise men, and all we know is that it was up to two years after Jesus was born. So it's possible that when the wise men arrived upon the scene, there was a little uh, Jesus in his terrible twos, running around the house. So it was up to two years later that they show up on the scene. Secondly, 
The New King James Version calls them wise men. Sometimes they're referred to as kings, probably most often as, I think you pronounce it this way, the magi. And what they're often called, or, or what they're called is often based upon the theory of where they came from. And so all the Bible says is that they're from the east, right? So sometimes we see them depicted as coming uh, from as far away as the Far East, and one of them will look like a, a Chinaman. But many believe that they come a little bit from a little bit closer countries. Like uh, there's a belief that there were some Jews that were in the area of Yemen at the time of Jesus' birth. And if you know the Middle East, they're very tribal people, and so you would have tribunal leaders that might be considered kings. And so there, that's the idea where we get the kings from. But the most common belief is that they came from uh, a tribe of people called the Medes. They're from Persia, which is modern-day Iran. And when they were there, they weren't necessarily kings, but they're highly educated scholars who would have been trained in medicine, history, religion, prophecy, and astronomy. And probably the most inter interesting aspect of this that I won't go into too much is that being from that area, it is believed that the influence that was upon them to even know about the Messiah and his birth came from the prophet Daniel. And so if you look in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, there's at least two prophecies that talk about the coming Messiah, and it's believed because he was appointed as the head of the wise men in Babylon, if you know the story when the king had a dream and he wanted it to be interpreted and then he told all the wise men interpret my dream or I'm going to kill you and I'm not going to tell you what the dream was you're gonna to have to tell me none of the wise men knew that were secular uh, people and then Daniel prayed God gave him the the vision of what the dream was and what the meaning was and then Daniel was put in charge he was over all of them he lived even when the Jews could return 70 years later he stayed he had tremendous influence over a nation of people and i do believe that he created probably a following after one god jehovah yahweh and so there is a teaching there there was something that people were following after that would cause them to know about that uh, so finally this we don't know how many wise men came. We always typically see three wise men. Uh, somebody suggested there's four, but the fourth guy's gift was fruitcake. So he wasn't allowed to make the trip. Yes, we've seen that online. I'm ripping it off today. Early tradition taught that there was actually 12, and it's still celebrated in the Eastern Orthodox Church that there was 12 uh, the Western Church adopted that there was three because of the three gifts that were mentioned, but regardless of it being three or 12, they would have traveled with probably a military escort and a caravan of people to assist them. So as they arrived at the house of Jesus, they believed that it was possibly several hundred people, if not over a thousand people, that showed up at Jesus' house. Uh, one of the most interesting things about this whole story I believe, is how these guys end up stopping in Jerusalem to ask Herod for directions. Some have suggested that this is why the wise men are so famous, because they're the only men in recorded history to stop and ask for directions.
All I know is you can find a, a lot of historical facts on the wise men, uh, but what we know is more important than what we don't know. Number one, wise men have faith. The scripture says this, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. What would cause someone to leave the comfort of their own home and to travel, to travel potentially hundreds of miles, if not over a thousand miles, over several months through the desert on a camel with a caravan of people, people that you'd have to provide food for and they'd have to have clothing and a way to travel all of that distance, that there would be danger from animals and people who were robbers and all sorts of dangers in more way than one. What would cause somebody to decide to leave the comfort of their home and do that? It's not like today's world where we can jump on a plane and travel a thousand miles to go see something or visit someone. No, it took time. It took planning. There was preparation. There was a lot of danger involved. What in the world would cause somebody to do that? Now, I think that you would agree if it was the potential for wealth. Yes. The possibility of romance for some. But faith. Would faith cause you to leave the comforts of your life and face the risk of losing it all. Where is he who was born the king of the Jews? What a probing question. There's no doubt in their language as they speak these words and ask this question that they believe that he's been born. Where is he? They'd seen the star. The evidence was real. Now where is he? They, they had faith that he was alive, that he existed. Now all they needed to do was find Jesus. How many of us know that we, we have the faith to believe that God is real? But do we have the faith to pursue finding him? Because there's a big difference between knowing what you should do or even what you want to do and actually doing it. These wise guys, they were willing to take action. They put commitment to their conviction. They put feet to their faith. They didn't just sit there staring out in the heavens, be like, oh, check it out. The star, it's real. Yeah, he's somewhere on the earth. That, that, that whole thing about God coming to earth is real. Must be pretty cool. When they got the sign, it says they boogied. Are you a seeker or are you a sitter? Matthew chapter 5 verse 6 says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. What do you do when you're hungry? I can tell you what fat boy does.
I'm just deciding on if I should tell a joke. Here's, I'm just going to be honest because this is what I'll do anyways. I, you don't need a, a yo, yo pasta so fat joke, right? But he has to use Google Earth to take a selfie. But uh, when I'm hungry, I'm hungry. And so when I'm hungry, I will go to the fridge. How many people go to the fridge? And I open this door, and then I open this door, and I look, and sometimes I'm looking beyond even the condiments. What if something that I want to eat fell behind the ketchup? Like, I will search through the fridge, and I will try and hawk something out. And when I don't, then I pull out the cold drawers, right, that are down below. That's where, like, the lettuce goes. And I know nothing's in the lettuce, but once in a while, you might find something in the lettuce. And I like cheese a lot, so I'll pull out and look for cheese. And we try not to buy a lot of it because, I, you know, I'm, I would be have too much cheese if we had it all the time. But I'm looking in there, and then I'll pull the freezer out. Maybe there's something in the freezer. And if there's nothing in the freezer, then I go to the cupboard that's next to it because that's where our cereal is and all of our, and sometimes snacks, things like that. And then I search through that. Then we have a snack drawer for the grandkids. And so we open the snack drawer. I'll open that for the grandkids. And then I search through all of the snacks in the snack drawer. And a lot of times it's like fruit snacks. I don't really care much for fruit snacks. But right above that is a cupboard that we throw things that we don't have room for in other cupboards that will sometimes be snacks. And if I don't see what I want to eat in that drawer, then I go downstairs because downstairs we have a food pantry. And so I open up the food pantry and not much has changed in it over the years, but every now and then I might find something. And if not there, then we have these shelves that we used to use for storing coffee supplies, and now it's acquired all of the things that we buy at Costco, and I will search through all of the things that we acquire at Costco. And then I know that sometimes when my wife's shopping, she will leave stuff in the back of the Tahoe. So if I still can't find something downstairs, I will go out in the garage. And every now and then I'll see like a sack of candy in the back of, our, of my wife's rig, or there will be some chips or something. And if there's nothing in the back of the Tahoe, then I go into our freezers. Mind you, we have four refrigerators and freezers in our garage, so it will take me a while to dig through all of those. But every now and then we'll have left something like Christmas candy or cookies in one of the freezers. I might find something. When all of that is said and done, if I don't find what I'm hungry for, I will drive to Yolks and buy it. I will do what it takes to satisfy the hunger in my life. And now we can sit and laugh about the drive behind hunger. But the truth is, you all know that sometimes you too will search every crook, cranny, and crevice. You will research. You will look on Yelp and whatever app that is out there to try and find the best place with the best food, and you're even willing to drive miles. You're willing to go to great lengths to find something that you're really hungry for. But are we willing to do the same in seeking Jesus? These guys... They're willing to risk everything to find him. And I, can you even imagine, like, their neighbor's reaction? Think about this. The neighbor's like, you guys going on a journey? Yep. How far? We're not sure. How long are you going to be gone? Not quite sure. Where are you going? Uh, we don't know for sure. Boy, for wise men... You got a lot going on up there, don't you? 
But do you know that when it comes to faith, they must have said the same things to Noah when he was building an ark before anybody on the earth had ever heard of something called rain. They must have said the same things to Abraham when he left home. And he wasn't quite sure where he was going. But God was taking him to what would become the promised land. They must have said the same things to Peter, Andrew, John, and James when they left their their fishing boats and established business to follow after a no-name teacher, rabbi, named Jesus. Like, what are you, crazy? Are you insane? Are you guys out of your minds? No, not out of our minds. We're men of faith. Your life's journey seeking Jesus always involves faith. Hebrews 11, uh, verse 6 out of the message reads this. It is impossible to please God apart from faith. And why? Because anyone who wants to approach God must believe both that he exists and that he cares enough to respond to those who seek him. Say, seek him. People of faith have been willing to respond to the challenges of the unknown over and over throughout history. In our search to draw closer to Jesus, my question is, how well do we respond to the challenges of the unknown, the unknowns in our life? The wise are a people of faith. Point number two is wise men worship. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Everybody say worship. You know, when you think about this, they didn't know what they were approaching. It was an unknown. They could have been disappointed when they arrived upon the scene and and found Jesus. Especially if he was in his terrible twos running around, right? They, They could have arrived upon the scene and he didn't look anything like a king. His home didn't look like a castle. He had no scepter in his hand. He commanded no armies. He gave no speeches. He passed no laws. It's possible that he couldn't even walk or talk. There's no royal decree that came from his lips. There was nothing to make you think that he was a king. To the outward eye, he was nothing but a peasant child that was born into poverty. But to the wise men, he was a king. He possessed more royalty in a cradle than Herod in his palace. And they've come all this way, but for one reason and one reason only. Somehow, the wise seekers saw beyond the present and into a future. And in deep faith, based upon what they could see in the future, with Jesus, they worshipped him. Worship means to kiss towards, to intensely adore. That's what it means to worship Jesus. And they somehow knew that this child would one day 
rule the world. And despite what it may have looked like to others, they were not afraid to fall on their faces and worship Jesus. Here's what's interesting. These guys weren't even looking for an answer to the meaning to life. They weren't trying to get in good with the king before he was actually ever known as the king in order to earn some sort of favor with him. There literally was no agenda on their part except to worship him. And before they gave what they had in their hands, they gave their hearts to Jesus. Their first priority was to give themselves in worship. And then in worship, they gave their best. Point number three, my final point, is that wise men give their best. When the wise men came on their journey, it, it was for the purpose of worship. But what did they do? They didn't just come to worship him. They brought with them gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And the gifts, of course, if you study them, have a lot of symbolism associated with them. Gold represents wealth. It's a gift that's fit for a king. Frankincense is the sap of a tree that's dried and then hardened and used by priests as incense to worship God. Thus, we see a gift for him as our high priest, and he's, it represents his deity. Mirror is a fragrant perfume that is used in those days to anoint the dead, to embalm and preserve them. So in these gifts, we see Jesus' life laid out before us. His royalty, his divinity, and his death. These offerings tell us who Jesus is, what he came to do, and how much it would cost him. How much it would cost him to become the ultimate gift to mankind. However, these gifts are more than just symbolic. If you know the story, they were very purposeful. Because you remember after Jesus was born that Joseph was warned in a dream to take Mary and Jesus to Egypt to protect the child from King Herod. And if they were poor, it would have been expensive to travel, to start a new life in a new country. And so it's possible that these gifts also helped support them while they were gone. But the gifts can also represent something to us. Gold, of course, often represents money. And if we're all honest, money is one of man's greatest temptations, one of his greatest challenges. It's, it's one of the great things that we're willing to sacrifice our time and our efforts for. And the question is, have we turned over ownership of everything, of everything to Jesus? Frankincense represents prayer. I was with a guy the other day and talking to him. Uh, we were doing some work together, and he's a Catholic, and so he was talking to me about the prayers that they pray in the Catholic Church, and then he began to tell me about a time where he heard a priest talk about something called conversational prayer, and so that's where I was able to enter into the story 
and share about how we too agree with conversational prayer. Just literally having a relationship with God that is close enough that you understand you can talk to him day by day, moment by moment, that you can have conversation with him, that you can talk to him and, and he can talk to you. And so there's this idea of prayer. And our question on Christmas is, are we bringing our hopes, our dreams, our hurts, and our habits to God in prayer? on a regular basis. The final gift, mirror, represents suffering and sadness. Have we given all of our pain? Have we given our bitterness? Because this is a time where bitterness floats to the surface in the holidays when we're surrounded by family, sometimes family that we are challenged by. Have we given our heartache to Jesus? This Christmas. Finally, these gifts served as a demonstration of their worship. And my question for all of us this morning is how do we demonstrate our worship for Jesus? They gave gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They gave gifts to demonstrate their heart of worship for him. How do we give in order to celebrate our worship for Jesus. Some people might think that maybe you've given nothing today. I want to give you a positive response. Yes, you have. If you're here, you have given him your time. You prepared for a journey this morning by getting up and getting dressed. You've given him your love, your worship, your attention, your tithes, your praise. When you came today, you came as a living sacrifice. And even though you may not view it as that, even though you may not have realized it, the efforts that you make to worship God is your sacrifice to him. But here's a fact that I want us to remember as we close. What God wants most of all what God wants above everything else is you, your heart. Romans 12.1, Paul would write to the Christians in Rome, and he would say, I beseech you. He's, he's encouraging them, begging them, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you will learn this lesson. Present your bodies a living sacrifice. Holy, which means you've been set apart. Acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. The greatest gift, the greatest sacrifice that you can give God is yourself. He wants your heart. He wants your attention 24-7. And so the questions to ask this morning once again or what am I willing to give him? Am I willing to give him my best? Am I willing to worship him despite what it looks like? Do I express my faith by diligently seeking Jesus? May we courageously step out 
in our journey of faith. Bring a heart of worship and give our best as we celebrate Christmas. Let us choose to be wise in seeking Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word this morning. And I pray that as we've heard your word, that your word being called the living word, sharper than any two-edged sword that's able to pierce our soul and our spirit, that your word would speak to our hearts beyond a man's words, a pastor's words, that we would be open to hear and receive what it is that you have for us today and in this season, that you would challenge us to be wise in our faith, that we would be hungry like the wise men were hungry in seeking after you. That we would have a passion to truly worship you, no matter what anybody else thinks it looks like. And that we would be willing to give you our best because you gave us your best. Lord, this day we celebrate the giving of Jesus Christ, your one and only Son, to us to begin the process of restored relationship. Lord, I pray this morning for people's hearts who don't have that restored relationship, who may not have the wisdom in that restored relationship to just choose even right now to surrender their heart to you and say, God, I want more of you. I want to know you more. I want you in my life. I pray for wisdom for us as Christians in this world, that we not get caught up in the ways of the world, but that we would be holy and set apart to glorify you, who's the giver of all good things. We give you thanks again for who you are. In Jesus' name we pray.